please do open your copy of the scriptures to that portion we read, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so this is the believer's role in sanctification. And by sanctification, I mean the process that the believer goes through upon the moment they are converted till the time that they leave this world to be with Christ, whereby Christ changes them to be more like him. And so what we see here in this text is that fundamentally, we have a responsibility to carry forward that work of sanctification. What it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now what we have in verses 12 and 13, though as I said I'm parking verse 13, but what we have is a paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is where you seem to have two truths or two statements which seem to be incompatible, right? They seem to be incompatible. You say they cannot go together. What we're really saying is, is they're irreconcilable. We can't reconcile them to the human mind. I'll give you two examples. There's loads of paradoxes in Scripture. One paradox is this the Bible is very clear the Lord is sovereign. Nothing comes to pass that He has not ordained, that He has ordained and decided and decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And so you find yourself in the situation where you have to embrace the fact, and the natural man on the street finds this horrible to think about, but you have to embrace the fact that God has decreed evil as well as good. God has decreed sin too. God decreed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. He was foreordained to die on the cross. And yet, that's one statement. God has allowed and ordained all things, good and evil. And yet the paradox is, is that God isn't responsible for the evil. For example, when the people crucified Jesus, though they were doing what God had decided they would do before the creation of the world, the Bible is very clear that they were guilty for doing that. What the paradox, therefore, is the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible puts before us two things that are both true. God has ordained all things and yet is not the source or the cause of evil. Man and sin and Satan are the responsible agents for all evil. To which you say, how can God plan something and yet not be responsible for something? That's a paradox. Because we know in a human situation, if I planned a crime, even if I didn't execute the crime, because I'm the architect, the author of the plan, I would be, in some sense, guilty. But the Bible is very clear. God is not guilty. God is holy, undefiled. It's a paradox. And therefore, unbelievers say, well, it can't, it can't be true. Or Christians, what they do is they tweak the truth. So they lessen God and say he hasn't decreed all things. He's not sovereign. In order to try and... Get him off the hook, if you like, perhaps, of doing evil, of being the cause of evil. Or on the other hand, they so, you know, so reduce man that then they end up with a God who is evil and horrible. Um, and so this, this is what people do. But the other paradox that comes to mind is the issue of how a person is, becomes a Christian. Is it true that a man or woman cannot be saved by good works? 
I can't save myself by good deeds. The Bible is absolutely clear. By works of the flesh, no one will be justified. We must be saved. We can only have peace with God if God freely forgives us by his grace. We receive his salvation as a gift. That's true. And so you to which and is it true that only a person can do that if God first works in the person? Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father draws him. Jesus also said, You did not choose me, I chose you. The reason, therefore, you chose me is because I first chose you. John says, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. And so you've got this amazing fact that salvation is of God. It's not of man. You didn't choose to be a Christian. You, weren't, you would never have become a Christian had God not eternally loved you and chosen you to salvation. And yet, and yet, the paradox is that every man is responsible to believe. Every man or woman. You have commands in the scripture. Go, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent and believe the gospel. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Now, many people read these paragraphs and say, this doesn't make sense. And so they therefore have a theology and they produce a belief system which says, there's no point preaching the gospel to anyone because only those who are chosen can be saved. And so they want to get, God off the, they want to get man off the hook. Man is not responsible to believe because man can't believe. But that's not what we see in the scriptures, is it? But equally, some people not liking the fact that God is sovereign and it must be by grace and it must be God's work, they so elevate man's work and man's free will and man's inherent ability to choose God that therefore preachers who embrace this, they have to manipulate people, right? Because it's about the human will. The power to be saved lies in the judgment and so I've got to sort of manipulate people to believe. It's what happens is when people have a paradox and try to solve it in a human way, you always end up with error. The best thing to do with a paradox is say, God has said this is true and this is true. And I might not see how those train tracks, I might not see the point at which they converge. That may be a horizon that no man in human reasoning can see past. His thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are above our ways. But what I say, let God be true and let every man be a liar. I hold these two things in tension. So God saves, man must respond. God chooses, but every man must hear the gospel. And I say, I don't see how those two things reconcile in God. God is sovereign in salvation, but man is responsible for sin. God has planned all things, but man is responsible for all evil and all sin. I might not see how those two things converge, but by faith and by humble submission, I see under the word of God, and I say, let God be true. Now, we come to another paradox. That's why I've been talking about that by way of introduction. A paradox. Because what Paul says in verse 12, and I'm going to come on to this, and if I preach it, you're going to be thinking, is he preaching works? He basically says, you are responsible for, for carrying on your progress in the Christian life. You have to work. And in our circles, we feel a bit nervous about that. Isn't it by grace, pastor? I don't like this talk about work. But in verse 13, he tells us it's God who works. That's next week. You see, the problem we have as a Christian life, when we think about our sanctification and our growth as Christians, is we think that our sanctification our ongoing Christian progress, we think it works in the same way as our conversion. But it doesn't. 
In conversion, or what we often call regeneration, or the new birth, that process whereby God takes away your old heart and gives you a new heart so that you can believe, you are completely passive, aren't you? You, you, did, you did nothing about that. Who of you caused your own birth? Ah, I'm glad I can't remember my creation, and I... <laughs> And I, and I don't remember being created. I don't know how I was created. It was a mysterious thing, but it had nothing to do with me. I just happened to be here because a prior work was done. And, and, and that's like it is in the new birth. When you become a Christian, you, weren't, you didn't become a Christian because you had this inherent ability to become one. God worked in your heart. God changed your heart. You were passive. You did absolutely nothing to motivate, there was, no, there was nothing in you which moved God to do it. He didn't look at you and go, you're the kind of person I need. In fact, most of us, you probably believe you're not the kind of person I need, but I'm going to do it anyway, in my grace. Because I'm going to change you. It's not about what you are. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you grace and I'm going to transform your life. But that's true. We believe that. It's what we talk about, the doctrines of grace. Salvation is what's called, theologians use a term, big, big word here, but some of you... If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. It's called monogism. Salvation is monogistic. It means salvation is of God alone. Right? It's not two parties involved. We, when we believe and when we respond, we are, all, we are responding to what God has done in us. It's a reflex action. God has changed my heart, opened my eyes, and now I see and now I choose. But my action was not part of my birth. But sanctification is what's called synergistic. We both work. Now, let me be clear on this. It's not 50-50. I'm not saying it's half God and half man. Again, we're, we're, this, is, this is mind-blowing stuff. You're going to really have to concentrate this morning, say a prayer now, give me grace to focus. What we're saying is, is your growth and your obedience in the Christian life is 100% God, but 100% you. Whereas in your new birth, it was 0% you. But you are actively, pa not passive, but engaged in obeying Christ. And actually, it's in your action in obeying Christ, we're going to come to see, that, you have, you, that it proves the reality of God working in you. That's where we're going. The paradox this morning is the Christian is active, but God is active. For Paul, progress in the Christian life is both simultaneously initiated, sustained, and empowered by God, verse 13. Yet, it is also actively and energetically and fervently pursued with great effort by the believer. If there is no active effort in the believer, there is no active work of God in the person. But if there is active effort on the, on the place of the believer, God is actively Working. So that is what we're considering this morning. Well, let's unlock and open up this verse, verse 12. Let's look at it carefully. And the first point of this morning is the true believer described. The true believer described. Do you want to know you're a real Christian? Do you want to have assurance that you are truly saved? I know a lot of us don't like doing this. But the Bible calls us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Furthermore, don't, 
you wouldn't want to be self-deceived, would you? I, I, I want to know I'm in the faith because once I'm dead and I'm before God in judgment, I can't change what my, my decisions in this life. So we should want to go through this process. And what you have in verse 12 is the description of a true believer. The true believer described. And we see the true believer described in various ways. Firstly, we see the true believer is loved by Christ. You say, where's that? Therefore, my beloved. Now just think about this. Why is Paul calling these believers my beloved? Remember, we want to go behind the words to the reality behind the words. Because Paul wants hated Christians. Why are they beloved to him? Because they're beloved to Christ. Look back at chapter 1. Again, the wider context of these words. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I love you because he loves you. You are beloved to me because you're beloved to him. Behind Paul, Paul's love is a borrowed love. Paul's love is, if you like, a mediated love. Love, what did the Lord Jesus say? Love one another with the love with which I've had for you. And so don't just read these words as just a man telling a people that he loves them, like we tell our mum and dad that we love them. Hear the heart of Christ beating through the, the ambassador of Christ, the spokesman of Christ. My beloved. Now why are they the loved of Christ? Why are they never loved? Because they are the called of Christ. Because they have been chosen by Christ. Who began their, their work? Again, who began their salvation? Who commenced it? Verse 6. He who began a good work in you. You didn't begin the good work when you chose Christ. He began the good work when he enabled you to believe and choose Christ. And Paul had preached at Ephesus and the first convert was a dear woman called Lydia in Acts 16. You can read all about it. And she was just praying with another group of women by the riverside. You didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. But she was trusting in the Messiah to come. But as of yet, she hadn't heard about him. And then Paul just made a decision. And we might say, oh, what a coincidence. Paul just decided to go and speak to any by the riverside to see if there were any who might listen. So Paul goes to, to, to Lydia and her, her women, her fellow women, and the text says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart in order that she would pay attention to the things that were said by Paul. So the Lord worked in her heart. Why? Why? Because he foreknew her. He eternally loved her. The Lord called her. Jeremiah says, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And then there was the Philippian jailer, wasn't there? At Philippi. And the ground shook. And then he invited Paul to speak to him and his whole household. And they all believed. And this whole church, his experience, can only be explained by the eternal love of God to them. 
There were many jailers who heard Paul and Silas sing and didn't get converted. There were many people that thrust Paul out when he spoke to them. Why, why was it that they turned to Christ? Because Christ loved them. Christ was eternally loving them. And he found, by Paul, he found Lydia, whom he'd always loved. How shall one preach unless one is sent? So why was Paul even sent? Why did Paul even preach to them? Because he was sent to them. Why are we here? Why are they here? Because we are the beloved of Christ. Josiah Conda captured this hymn wonderfully. Lord, this truth wonderfully, sorry. Lord, tis not I that did choose you, that I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you, had your grace not chosen me. You removed the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me, that I live for you alone. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, or else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you, for your grace alone I first, knowing well that if I love you, you, O Father, loved me first. Why are you a believer here? Because he loved you, and he's always loved you. And the argument to this is, well, I don't like that, you know. That, that, that. Okay, so you, you deny that you believe because he loved you first. Well, I've, I've met people that believe that, and yet they still thank God for saving them. You see, everyone, even if they deny in, in theory what I'm saying, in their prayers, they, they acknowledge that they know what I'm saying. If you believe that, you, that salvation lied in your choice... In your free will, then you shouldn't be praying, thank you, Lord, for saving me. You say, like with the Pharisee, I thank you, Lord, that my judgment was sound enough to make a choice that other people were too stupid to see. You see, you would never pray like No, I've never heard any person who doesn't believe in what I'm saying pray like that. Would you have chosen God if God had not drawn your heart? And some say, okay, well, he, they could say, God loved me, he chose me, but it's because he foreknew me, it's because he saw something in me. He saw that I would believe. Well, then it's not of grace, it's of works. You're saved by the fact that God saw something good in you before time was. We are beloved because Christ has eternally loved us. That is what a true Christian is, someone who is loved by Christ. Notice that in verse 29 of chapter 1. For to you, still talking to his beloved, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What is he saying there? You are believers because it's been bestowed upon you as a gift in order to reward Christ on behalf of Christ. Christ suffered and bled and died and poured out his heart to save many lost sinners. And he's worked in your, you, you now believe as a reward for Christ, on behalf of Christ. You now believe. Why do you believe? Now, just think about this. Some of us say, I'm not sure. I don't feel the love of God. Or, don't, you know, we, 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 I don't feel loved by God. Let me ask you a different question then. Do you believe this morning? I'm not asking you what you feel. I'm asking you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? That he is your saviour? Have you turned to him in repentance and faith? If you can say 
yes. I can say to you with all the authority of my text and the scriptures, you are loved right now by God. There is very real, true love for you. Because you believe. Because you have been eternally loved. But how does someone live who is loved by Christ? Who is saved by grace? That's why I've laboured that point. Because what I'm going to say would be shocking if I hadn't laboured it. So you're not a Christian because of anything you've done. You're a Christian because you are beloved. That's why. But then you see, secondly, that a true Christian is without exception. Without exception. There's no buts or caveats to what I'm saying. Is obedient to Christ. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. As you have always obeyed. I want you to see that there's a link between verse 12 and what's gone before. When you see wherefore or therefore in verse 12, he is saying that this is the result of what he's just said. In other words, these believers at Philippi have, have understood that Christ came into this world, made himself nothing, obeyed God even to the point of death for their souls. He's now risen and ascended and has all authority. He's been declared Lord. He is God. He is God's son. And in view of this, if you really believe this, if this is really true, if Jesus really is your Lord, if he really died to take away your sin, therefore you have always obeyed. The only proper response to someone who's grasped this within their soul is a life of intentional, deliberate obedience to Jesus Christ. Therefore, in view of the fact that Christ obeyed God for me at such a great cost to himself, even death of a cross, there is no act of obedience, there is no path that God calls me to go, that the word of God takes me that is too much for him to ask, because he did everything for me. And I've repented of being Lord of my life. I'm not Lord of my life. I don't get to call the shots anymore. He, he was crucified for my life. Why would I cling to my life? Why would I seek to be Lord of my life? That was why he had to die. Because I put myself on the throne when it should have been him on the throne. And so as gratitude for all that he has done, I will always obey. Sometimes you often hear a person who was come from a very difficult background, perhaps economic or family breakdown, maybe they were raised by a single parent, and yet they've really made something of their life. They've got a great career, they've, they've really pressed on and done great things, and they're asked, what, what is it that has enabled you to do all that you have done? And they would say, maybe something along these lines, I've heard it said many times in interviews, the sacrifice of a single mother. Or a single father. My mum had, she had five kids and her dad left and it was just me and mum and us and mum and mum cared for us, fed us, clothed us, worked a night job. She did absolutely everything for us. The least I can do is honour her sacrifice by making something of my life. You see, even at the human level, people know what it is to respond to sacrificial commitment to people.
And there's no greater sacrifice and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my most favourite hymns, it is probably my favourite hymn, is the one that says, He loved me, blessed be his name. There's a verse in there that says, It was a lonely path he trod from every human soul apart. Known only to himself and God was all the grief that filled his heart. Yet from the track he turned not back to where I lay in want and shame, he found me. Blessed be his name. There was no act of obedience too much for the Saviour to rescue me and to rescue you, Christian. And so, therefore, Paul describes these Philippians as those who have always obeyed in view of the uh, humiliation and condescension and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, question. It says always obeyed. Now, the English can be quite ruthless there, can't it? Um, Does that mean sinlessness? It cannot mean that. Because there were issues he was dealing with at Philippi. There was Judea and, and Syntyche. There was the fact that he had to exhort them to look out for other people's interests must have meant that there was a degree of selfishness uh, going on in the church. So he's not saying that they have perfectly obeyed. But he's saying, and, and, and this is what, you know, there are, there are challenges in this, but there are comforts, I think. He's saying to you, the mark of a Christian who's someone who is always in the fight, always striving to obey, is always seeking to have their conduct worthy of Jesus Christ, verse 27 of chapter 1. And when you sin and and when when you do what you shouldn't do, you hate that fact. You are burdened by that fact. It's your greatest problem. What we might say is that you're you're captive to Christ. You know, sometimes you hear it, don't you? You hear a spouse, or particularly normally a man who's, who's besotted with a woman, says, oh, I'll do anything for her. I'm just captivated by her. There's been lots of love songs on the radio. You know, the, the, this, this person's captivated me, and there's nothing she could ask me to do that I would not do. To be a Christian is to be captivated by Jesus, and he, 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 he has a, a hold on your heart so that you can't sin comfortably, you can't, Go for long without confessing your sin because you love him. And you want to be close with him. And the distance that your sin puts you experientially between you and him, it's your, it's your greatest burden. But you're always seeking to obey. Now this is so important to stress in the modern day. And I don't know all of your backgrounds. And I don't know what teaching you've come under. But nevertheless, even if you've all had good teaching, you will meet people. We may meet people on the street that haven't had this teaching. We are living in a day where being a Christian has been reduced to making a decision, being baptised, giving your life to Jesus. And all that's asked for is, do you understand the gospel? And if they say, well, yes, Jesus is, I'm a sinner and he's a saviour and um, yeah, I believe that he died to save sinners. And there's no more probing than that, especially if they've grown up in a Christian home. They're going to be relatively moral anyway. So you're not going to have sort of, you know, outrageous, necessarily scandalous sins. So you say moral life, sound understanding. And of course, they want a ticket out of hell. And they want to please mum and dad. So they'll say a prayer. Pastor will get them baptised because they've not had the baptism waters over for years. And it's exciting and they can invite people in. So they, they baptise them. And this is going on in churches across the land. There are even same-day baptisms. You know, some, get, come and get baptised. No desire to ascertain whether there's a true work of 
God in their hearts. Now, the objection to what I'm saying is, well, it's by grace. It is by grace. It is by grace that we're saved. But grace always shows it. The, the reality of grace in your heart shows itself in the fruit of grace, which is obedience. No obedience, no grace. No heart that wants to serve the Lord and make him Lord. You, if, you don't want to, if you don't care about your sin, if you want to live however you want to live, then you haven't known grace. I rejoice in the recovery of grace in our day. I do. But it's been turned into what I like to call hyper-grace. As if the way we are saved is also the way we are sanctified. That, that because we do nothing in salvation, we have to do nothing in the Christian life but believe Jesus died for sinners. But when it says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the, the next bit is very important as well. And believe in your heart. There must be a change of heart concerning your sin and concerning him. I think many of the people we often call backslidden may just, in fact, not be saved. Maybe they never bowed the knee to Jesus, verse 9. Remember, therefore, in view of these things, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. If your life is not submissive to him, not bowed to him, you're not a Christian, whoever you are. And that's not my opinion. That's the scripture's teaching. Sometimes people leave, and I've dealt with this, experienced Christians who love the Lord, dear saints, but they have a child that was baptised at 16, 17, and for the last 20, 25, 30 years, they've been living an immoral, godless lifestyle, sleeping around or married an unbeliever, and they've gone into this whole world of living, and they're clinging, they're clinging to this. Well, they made a decision when they were 18. What does Ephesians 2 verse 8 say? We often only stop at half the verse, or half the text. So Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. We've established that point. It is the gift of God. But why are we saved? Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, him, in, in them. If someone is not walking obediently to Jesus Christ, and we say they're a Christian, what we are doing is diminishing the power of God's grace. We're saying, actually, God's promises aren't true. God doesn't, in the new covenant promises, doesn't cause his people to walk in his statutes. He, he doesn't, because this person clearly is a Christian, but, but, but doesn't walk the way of the Lord. Consider what Paul says in, to the Thessalonians. He remembers without ceasing your, their work of faith, labour of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying he observes, he thanks God, he remembers before God their labour, their faith, and their patience. And what's the, what's the outcome of this remembrance? Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, that you have been chosen by God. What did John say? They who went out from us, if, if people start off in the church, but then they, they walk away, from the church and embraced. I know people that profess faith and are now going on LGBT marches. They want to profess salvation by grace alone. If they went out from us, they were not of us. 1 John 2, 19. 
Now look at this. They went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us at all. How many friends and family members do we have? I'm not saying this is easy to face, but we must. Have we failed to apply biblical criteria to their lifestyles? We are not to judge people's hearts, but we can and are told to judge people's fruit. Jesus said, by your fruits you shall know them. We are exhorted to do so. But how many of us fail to actually face up to the, the position of our loved ones because ultimately we can't emotionally stomach the truth? I've known pastors when I'm dealing with people coming to me from other churches and I'm, question, and I'm saying, I don't see a Christian here. They get really angry. Why? Because it was their one convert. And they don't want to have to face the fact that possibly their one person that they baptised might not have been a true Christian. They're living off that after 10, 15 years. But we, the thing is, when we don't actually face up to these criterias, we actually therefore can't love them. We won't speak the truth to them in love. We won't call them from the place where they really are. And we actually don't pray for them with the urgency that is needed. It takes far more than intellectual acceptance of the gospel creed to be a Christian. What did James say? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead. Being alone. He's saying, if you claim to be saved by grace, by faith, man, I'm saved by grace. But there's no works. Your faith is dead because it's alone. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's saying, I will prove to you that I have true faith by the works that come from faith. I think R.C. Sproul used to say, I don't know if R.C. Sproul, but he used to say, um, we are justified by faith, in, faith alone in Christ alone, but faith in Christ is never alone. It always has the accompanying works. James goes on to say, you believe that there is one God. You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devil believes the Baptist confession. He knows it's true. He knows about all these things. So that's the true believer described. Beloved of God, but obedient to Christ. But secondly, see the true believer exhorted. The true believer exhorted. As you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, even when your pastor's not there, when the one who's sort of coaching you on the sides and urging you on and pressing you forward, even when he, I'm removed from the scene, continue much more to obey in my absence. And do so with fear and trembling. Now every pastor and every elder wants to know his sheep, wants to be involved in the lives of his sheep, wants to be there when there's a request to come and counsel. Absolutely. But you know, one of the marks of maturity in a Christian is when they don't need to be constantly... Um, motivated along why aren't you at the meeting or don't need to be jivvied in the Christian life because you are living in fear and trembling you're not living for pastor or for elders or for deacons you're not living because you might get a, a phone call for, say where are you no you live before the presence of God pastors may be absent pastors may die teachers may die some, I've known some Christians to walk in a certain way when they had a godly father in their church. 
And the, uh, the senior patriarchal figure in the family dies. And then all of a sudden, the so apparent zeal wanes. What, what was going on there? Was it some sort of desire to please their father? I don't know. But the true Christian doesn't need other people to stimulate them. The true Christian lives before God in the fear of God. When Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife, did anyone, could anyone have seen? Seems like they were completely alone, doesn't it? No one, I mean, he could have done the act. And no one would have known, except God would have known. God sees all sin. His eyes are in every place. And what did, they, what did Joseph say? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Or a verse I often cling to as a preacher, but the principles there that I'm saying is when Paul speaks to Timothy and he tells Timothy the time's coming, there will be difficult days and there will be times when people won't want to listen to sound teaching. They'll go to a church which preaches easy things to their ears. They, won't, they will be lovers of themselves and uh, they're not going to care about the truth. They won't have itching ears. They heat themselves up teachers, television teachers, YouTube teachers. But what did Paul say to Timothy? I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Do it when it's popular, when you're thanked for it. Do it when it's not popular, when hardly anyone comes to listen, and no one thanks you for it. In other words, don't be stimulated. Don't do this simply because you're thriving off the accolades and the response. Do it in the fear of God. And that is how we're to live our Christian life. We obey Christ much more in the absence of, influ- of those who have taught us because we're doing it with fear and trembling. Now, this fear and trembling, just quickly on this, what is, what is it? What is a Christian's fear and trembling? Because we don't fear the wrath of God anymore. We don't fear the condemnation of God. This is what's called a filial fear. It's a, it's a childlike fear. Paul uses the same phrase to the Corinthians. He says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If any of you have raised sons, you know that one thing is true about your sons. They want to please their dad for a certain period until they become teenagers and then they don't want to please their dad. But um, every little boy, if they have a father on the scene, just wants to please dad. They draw a picture they want to show you. They've made something they want to show you. They want to show you. They've made their bed. They want to show you. They want to please dad. Why? Because there's a filial fear. They, they, want to, they don't want to displease their dad. They just want to be, him to be happy. They want him to, to delight in them, to be proud of them. And when Paul says he came to the Corinthians with the fear and the trembling, that's what you've got there. A, a man who said, I just want to serve Christ. I, I just want to honour him. I want to glorify him. I, but I look at myself and I feel my sin and I feel my weakness and my inadequacy. And I just fear that I will fail him. I just fear that I will let him down. That is a Christian's fear. It is, it is a fear of, of letting your saviour down. It is a fear of, it's, it's, a, it's a humility. And this is the man I will look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. There is also maybe a fear of the rod of correction, discipline, which isn't pleasant. Um, but I think primarily it's a filial fear. Now, the last phrase, we come into the land now. 
But the last phrase is the key phrase. So if I've lost you, tune back in. Then to work this out in the absence of any outside influences but God, but what is it there to do? They're to work out their own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Now hang on a minute. This is really confusing now. I'm saved. You know, often we, uh, we go up to people and say, are you saved? That's what they, uh, the evangelists often used to say. Are you saved? Um, and we know what we mean when we ask that question. I'm not necessarily saying it's the wrong question to ask. Have you been saved from the judgment to come? A Christian can say, yes, I have. Because there's a sense in which there is a moment in time when we repent and when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God does this amazing thing where he justifies the ungodly. He says, you're no longer liable for any of the offences that you have committed. Hallelujah, I'm saved. I don't fear the wrath to come. But actually, in the New Testament, when salvation is spoken of, it's spoken of not in that, that narrow past event, it's spoken as a, as a comprehensive term. It speaks of those who have been saved, who are being saved, and will yet being saved. So there is a sense in which none of us have been saved. Because we've not yet been fully delivered from all sin and wickedness and temptation and darkness. That moment will only occur when we're with, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. But in this life then... We are, if we're a Christian, we are being saved. And the Bible uses that language. Paul uses it in various places. He talks about those who are, the, the um, aroma of Christ is an aroma of death to those who are perishing. There's unbelievers around us, they're actually perishing as, as a verb. They're in a state of, of perishing. But it's an aroma of life to those who are being Saved. Or Acts 2, verse 47, he added to the church daily those who had been saved. That's not what it says. Those who are being saved. Uh, so we are, as Christians, being saved. We're being sanctified. We're being delivered from a lifestyle of sin. We're being made to be more like Jesus Christ. We are growing in obedience. This is what we call sanctification. And Paul says... Work out this. Work out your sanctification. Now this word translated work out literally means in the original language it speaks of producing, creating, bringing something about. And it's used in other places. It speaks of, for example, the law of God brings about wrath. Because there's a law that we've all broken, it produces wrath. Um, our light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, are working for us or bringing out for us or accomplishing for us a far more exceeding way to glory. It's the same word. So what Paul is saying then is as surely as sin brings about wrath and the law brings about evil desire and our afflictions bring us to glory, we... Bring about holy living. And so it is not let go and let God. Rather it is get up and get going. It is a stiff upper lip. Don't wait to feel something. 
Find out in the word what God requires of you, O man. The revealed things belong to, to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. Whatever God has revealed, it belongs to me for my compliance with and my obedience. I don't have to overthink it. I don't have to wait for an emotional kick to do something. I don't have to pray for an impulse. If something is written in the word of God, the command about holy living, I am to go about and pursue it in the strength that God gives and in dependence on his power, verse 13. Paul speaks about this in various places. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. So I think this changes the way we view the Christian life. We are not saved by human effort, but human effort is involved in our being saved. And that's what the text says. When the new, I will give you a new heart in order that you would walk in my statutes. We have the heart. That's why it's different to being unconverted. God, it has to be a monogistic, sovereign work of God, independent of our will, because our will could never choose God. But the difference now as a believer is we have a renewed nature. We have a new heart. We have a new mind. We ha- and so we, 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 with the strength that God gives, we can choose to do God's will. This is what it is to be spirit-filled, by the way. There's a lot of confusion about being spirit-filled. It's, it's speaking in tongues, it's, 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 it's experiences, it's, it's, it's dreams, it's impressions. But Ephesians chapter 5 is extremely clear, and it's totally quoted out of miscontext by many false teachers today. Look what it actually says in verse, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, understand what God's will is in order that you would do it. And what comes next straight away in the context? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a man or a woman who understands the will of God and does the will of God. That that changes the way we think about these things. I have known people who've had tremendous claims of dreams and visions, and yet their lives are not obedient to Scripture. Therefore, they are not Spirit-filled. See also that obedience here is worked out in the local church. If, it, if you had an AV in front of you, which can be useful if you don't know the Greek and the Hebrew, because the AV captures singular and plural, one of the reasons it's useful, I think. It, it, he makes it very clear that, that, that as ye have always obeyed, this is, this is a something that is, right, this is a very important point, this is something that's worked out in the local church. So many Christians get their main diet of teaching on the internet, on YouTube, and, and, but, but, but actually, and travelling around, but actually what is quite clear is that obedience in the Christian life is actually fostered in the context of living in a family, in the household. I have children. If my children were raised outside of my house as free rangers, are they going to grow up to be obedient, disciplined young men? Oh, but they watch online fathers. Yeah, but the online fathers don't see them and can't exhort them with their blind spots. The only way we can actually grow in obedience is if we're plugged in and connected and joined to the family of Christ where Jesus has promised his blessing. This is a massive issue today. People thinking that they can walk the Christian life without being plugged in to the local church. It's so contrary to the word of God.
what a difference this makes to ordinary things. I've had to be thinking about this a lot lately because, you know, I confess, some, like with family worship, so sometimes if, if I've had a bad day or I'm not in the mood, sometimes it gets slipped. But I need to change the way that I approach obedience. It's irrelevant whether I feel like doing it. I do it because it's right. That is the, that is the mark of being spirit-filled. It's the, the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly and it's shaping your decision-making. It would change how you view the prayer meeting and, and public worship. You, I mean, if we came when we felt like it, I wouldn't have many people to preach to. Certainly not twice on the Lord's Day, dearie me. And the prayer meetings after a long day of work, I know. But if it's the will of God to not forsake the assembling, the early church who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and of prayers... We want to be proper Christians, we've got to be devoted to the prayers too, the prayer meeting, not just the Sunday morning service, not just the Sunday evening service. This is what being, this is what being a Christian is. And, I, and you, can, you can charge me with legalism if you want to, but I've already said it's by grace. But grace produces in us this kind of response to Christ and his lordship. Personal holiness, sometimes, I mean, I, I'm like this so often... Besetting sin is, 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 is troubling me, and, uh, and I, I go to, and I do it again. I go to God and say, Oh Lord, I'm just, you've got to help me with this. And, and therefore, I do nothing because I think that God's got to help me, and I've got to get some sort of impulse or strength or zap. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, If your right hand calls you to sin, what do you say? Chop it off. If your eye calls you to sin, pluck it out. In other words, I, there are things we can do. Look around you. What's causing you to sin? What's provoking you? What's the context? And make decisions now to take the things out that are a stumbling block. The Christian life is actually quite simple in many ways. We have a good God who's at work in his people. We have a clear revelation of God that is unfolded to us. And all we are to do is to seek God for grace to do all that he's commanded. We are breathing the, the Kool-Aid of feeling culture, aren't we? And, and churches have gone down that path. I don't feel like going out next Friday. I never feel like it. But so often we find, don't we, it's when we just trust and obey for there's no other way, you often come home feeling blessed, feeling encouraged, how many times have I gone to church when the days when I wasn't a pastor and, oh, and as a pastor since I've been preaching? How many times have I preached when I haven't felt like preaching? I've got to be honest, I don't always feel like preaching. I don't. Because I'm a sinner. But then I preach. God encourages my heart with what I'm saying and, and I'm blessed. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What an antidote this is to being led by impulse, being governed by feeling. We are to be governed by conviction. Let us be a conviction-led people. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Amen.